Here's the scenario. You are at your favorite sporting venue. You and you alone know that a disaster is about to occur. You're there at the game. You're seated next to the steel superstructure which supports the whole stadium. And you happen to notice some stress cracks in the steel. It's an exciting game. The crowd is getting louder and louder. And as the crowd gets louder, you notice that right around this crack, the steel starts to vibrate. And you and you alone know that impending doom is awaiting the entire audience that day. Death and destruction are imminent. There's not much time left. What would you do in a crowd of thousands to get their attention? To warn them that doom awaits them all if thus they act. What would you do? Talk to me, church. Yell, okay. Good luck. Big crowd. They're all yelling. What would you do? Did somebody say go streaking? <laughs> like, get their attention, all right. Land you in jail, too. Um, Someone would run out on the field, right? You'd, you'd try to grab a camera and a microphone somehow to let people know. Maybe you'd try to get on the Jumbotron, right? Just get in front of a camera and, and get on the jump because they're everywhere. You can't go to a major sporting event these days. Cameras are everywhere. And, and just try to get on the kiss cam, right? Something, you know, try to get people's. But here's the deal. If you do that, you've got to be prepared. The only way you could, this would work is if you knew that this disaster was coming. You have to be prepared like this guy. Watch. <laughs> Kiss cam like, ain't no way, baby. No, no way. You know, maybe you do your hair up, you know, crazy or make your clothes disheveled and start raving like a madman. That's got a pretty long tradition of working fairly well. And for people living in Judea in the early part of the first century, that's pretty much how they were introduced to John the Baptist. If you've got your Bibles, open your Bible apps, open them to Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Luke chapter 3, verse 7. I want to thank you for being here today. If it's your first time here at Chapel Rock, um, maybe you weren't intending to come here and the wind just blew you in the door. Um, we're glad you're here. I, I, <laughs> I'd love to meet you when we're done. My name's Casey. I'd love to learn yours. Uh, when we're finished, I'll be down here. Please come and say hi if it's your first time here today. Uh, if you're joining us online, thanks for doing that. We appreciate so many of you do that every week. If you're local to Indy, we really want to encourage you to be here with us. Uh, there's something you can only get uh, when you're here. We continually hear that from folks who watch online. But regardless, we're glad you're doing that. Take a second. Uh, when we're all done, bounce away from the feed and fill out your online connection card. If you haven't done your paper one in here yet, please do that. Uh, that really helps us out. just helps us care for you better. Uh, we're, we're not like, you know, keeping track of you uh, like Google does, um, but, but rather just to know how to care for you, okay? And so... And that's really helpful. We're starting a new sermon series today called Lost in the Crowd. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at passages in Luke's gospel where Jesus interacts with the crowd. And that's a specific word that Luke uses to talk about this, this certain group of people. 
It's the word aklos, is how he says it. And you can see it there. The word aklos, that's what it looks like in Greek, meant crowd or throng or multitude. Rudolf Meyer, a Bible scholar, called them the leaderless and rudderless mob, the politically and culturally insignificant mass. Just regular, ordinary, everyday folks. <laughs> the crowds. And what we're going to do over the next several weeks as we get our hearts ready for Resurrection Sunday is look at how Jesus interacted with the every man, the every woman of his day. How did he talk to the crowd? How does his heart move toward meeting the needs of the crowd? The point of this series is to show over and over and over again that even if you feel lost in a sea of faces, if you feel anonymous among the crowd, Jesus sees you and he knows you and he loves you. Except that today the spotlight isn't so much on Jesus as it is on John the Baptist, and that's a problem. <laughs> John's whole mission was to shine the spotlight on Jesus. In fact, in John 3.30, he says, He must, Jesus, must become greater. I must become less. We just sang about this just a few minutes ago. More of you means less of me. That's what John said, John the Baptist said. He must increase, I must decrease. John's mission was to try to redirect people's attention away from himself and on to Jesus. He's got this huge crowd of people coming out to hear him preach. And he said, don't look at me, look at him. How do you redirect a whole crowd of people? We're going to look at that. The first time we meet the crowd in Luke is when they're going out to hear John the Baptist preach. So let's look at this passage together. Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers. So a nice warm fuzzy sermon. Um, <laughs> Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Kind of an Old Testament play on image there, because ultimately all humans are made from dust. <laughs> it's, it, you see what he's doing there. And then he says this in verse 9. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. You're going to want to pay attention to that word fire. What should we do then, the crowd asked, the aklas. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they ask, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. See, the way taxation worked in the first century was you would bid to the Roman government for a position, and you, they said, you've got to collect this much. And then you can collect a salary on top of that for yourself. <laughs> That's not going to be corrupt at all. Right? If the guy wants a raise, he just says, oh, you owe this much. And then he goes and buys a new camel or whatever, you know. 
new pair of sandals. You know, I mean, it just, it, it, there's, there's, it was easily a corruptible system. And so it was, it was rife with corruption. Tax collectors would, would constantly say, you owe this much, or you owe this much, or you owe this much. And they would do it to business people. So you can imagine within the 12, you know, Jesus' 12 apostles, right? Some of them are small business owners. Peter, Andrew, James, and John own a fishing business. Then Jesus goes and calls Levi Matthew, a tax collector from Galilee, who they would have paid their taxes to. Imagine how that went over. Not him, Lord. Come on. That's the system. And so John says, don't collect any more than you're required to. Then some soldiers ask him, and what should we do? Now these soldiers, the, the scholars go round and round. Were they Roman soldiers like legionnaires? Or were they Herodian soldiers? Jewish men contracted by Herod. to More like a local police force. We're not sure. I tend to lean toward the latter. I, I think that um, initially those would have been the ones going out to hear John. Then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water. Baptize means dunk. But one who is more powerful than I. Now let me pause right there. That, literally what that means is stronger. It's the normal Greek word for strength. We're going to come back to that. That's really important in this passage. One who is stronger than I will, will, will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. And he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. With many other words, John exhorted, it means the word means encouraged, taught the people and proclaimed the good news to them. John wants to make sure, Luke, writing, speaking you know, uh, for John here, wants to make sure that we understand that despite John's borderline miraculous birth, there was nothing inherently supernatural about it, but his mom was really, really, really old when she gave birth to him, okay? Borderline miraculous. And the messianic expectation surrounding John, his whole purpose was to point people to Jesus. He's saying, there's one coming after me who's stronger than me. You need his baptism. Jesus was the stronger one that John was pointing people to. And so we're going to lean into that this morning. Here's the big idea today. Only someone stronger than you can pull you out of the crowd and into a relationship with him. Only someone stronger than you can pull you out of the crowd and into a relationship with him. You see, when Jesus did this for us, when he pulled us out of the crowd, the leaderless and rudderless mob of humanity, some things changed for us. Some things are different. And I think that this text really lays out two things that changed when Jesus pulled you out of the crowd. Here's the first one. Number one, you produce the fruit of repentance. When Jesus pulled you out of the crowd and into a relationship with him, you begin to produce the fruit of repentance. That's what John is telling the people here. That's what he's describing for them. And he does it by, by really kind of leaning into some of these judgment images you know, John bursts on the scene. If you were to go back and read the beginning of chapter 3, you'll see that it, it, was, it was the uh, Tiberius Caesar. So you've got Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, who was the Caesar when Jesus was born. Then the next one, his adopted stepson, was Tiberius. He was the Caesar at that time, okay? He would have been Caesar while Jesus, during the ministry of Jesus. 
And it's during that frame. So Luke, you know, kind of date and time stamps the story. It happened at this point. So we can, you know, pretty well date when this happened. Lock it in history. And he says, John bursts on the scene, and his message is not warming. You'd think, right, if you want to attract a crowd, right, you tell them what they want to hear. <laughs> That's not what he's doing. He, you brood of vipers. He's literally calling them children of snakes. And he confronts them with the reality of this impending judgment. And when confronted with the reality of impending judgment, naturally the crowd wants to know how to escape it, right? When they're confronted with that, like, this is going to happen, <laughs> well, how do we avoid that? And there are a couple interesting connections that, that occur in this text. First of all, the crowd makes this connection between seeing their own brokenness and, and seeing a need for baptism. They make that connection in their head. John is preaching, he's saying, you're messed up. God is going to judge you. And they're like, what do we do? This is a preview of what's going to happen in Acts. In Acts chapter 2, verse 37, the same thing happens. Day of Pentecost. Peter gets up and says, God sent Jesus. He sent the Messiah, but you killed him. And they say in Acts 2, 37, brothers, what should we do? Acts 2, 38, Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Again, there's this connection between, oh man, I'm messed up. And I got to do something with this. How do I respond? Well, you need to be baptized, John says. And if you've never been baptized, you'll have an opportunity to do that this morning here in a little while. The second connection we see here is that there's a connection between who they think John is relative to who they are. Here's what I mean. They call John in the text teacher. Normally in the Gospels, when you see the word teacher in English, it's translating um, the Hebrew word rabbi that just got ported over into Greek, typically. It's the word rabbi, or sometimes my teacher, rabboni, um, is, is the word you'll see there. That's not what they say. They use the normal Greek word for teacher, didaskale. What that means is these are not terribly religious people. <laughs> they don't know the churchy language. They just, it's the normal word in Greek for teacher. Now, Luke is probably writing his gospel to a more Greek audience, so maybe that's why that word gets picked. I, I really think it's because these are not religious people. These are not really church people. It's the crowd. It's the average, ordinary, everyday folk. That's the word they know. So they call him teacher. But they are genuinely seeking repentance. John's got this group of people in front of him. And so he outlines the fruit that real repentance produces. Repentance, by the way, just simply is turning away from your sin and turning toward God. That's what repentance is in the Bible. All right? So if, if over here is sin and over here is God, repentance is like, nope. That's, that's just the easiest way to describe it in the Bible. Okay? And, and he says that's what this does. When you have the fruit of real repentance, your life will change. And there are three main sins that John confronts here. First of all, when he speaks to the crowd generally, he just kind of decries their selfishness. <laughs> he says, if you've got more than your neighbor, share, you know, help them, okay? And then when he confronts the tax collectors, he critiques their greed. And then when John speaks to these soldiers or, or local police or however, whatever, you know, role they took, what he's talking about is the way that they're abusing their power. They've got power, they've got influence, and, and John lays into them for it. And he says, you're abusing the power and the influence you have in society for your own good and your own gain. And that's wrong. Don't do that. 
treat people with justice. See, what John is talking about here are the very fruits of repentance. I think sometimes in our, in our culture, we've gotten this idea that repentance just means to feel bad about your sin, to feel guilty. That's not repentance. That's guilt. Repentance means you do something different, right? P- parents, you know this. Anyone who's had children or grandchildren in their home knows this. I told you, don't do that. Okay. And you walk away and you come back and they're doing it again. I don't do that. I'm sorry. No, you're not. You're doing it again. <laughs> you're laughing because this happened yesterday in your house. John is saying here that real repentance, biblical repentance, is marked by seeing and seizing opportunities to practice justice and mercy. I'm going to say that again. Biblical repentance is marked by seeing and seizing opportunities to practice justice and mercy. Now you take a step back from this text for a second and you ask yourselves, What would our society look like if it was devoid of selfishness, greed, and the abuse of power? (laughs) I don't know either, but I want to go there. Church, I say we do something about that. I say we work to make that happen. I want to live in a place like that. I want to live in that city. That's what John is pointing at. He's saying that the fruit of real repentance, the produce of allowing the good news to change us, he says that Jesus is coming, the Messiah, the Savior is coming. And so in our case, we, the, the, the Savior has come, the Messiah has come, and he's coming back. So for us here on this side of the cross, we have to work to get the world ready to live in the world because when he comes again, that's the way it'll be, won't it? There'll be justice. There'll be mercy. That's the, world, that's the way the world will be when Jesus comes again. Our job is to get the world ready for that. Eager for that. But because of our selfishness and our greed and our abuse of power, we need to be shocked into listening by facing the reality of the alternative to repentance. John lays that out pretty clearly. Repent. You need to Change. And and the question, well, why? Well, here's the alternative. And he spells it out. The axe is at the root of the tree. Everyone who does not produce fruit will be thrown into the fire. The alternative to biblical repentance is a place the Bible calls hell. John says it's a real place and that those who do not repent will go there. In his novel, A Painted House, John Grisham describes a Sunday school teacher eulogizing a mean character named Jerry Sisko, who'd been killed the night before in a back alley fight because he ticked off the wrong person. In the words of a little boy who'd seen the fight with his friend Dwayne, Grisham writes, She made Jerry sound like a Christian and an innocent victim. I glanced at Dwayne, who had one eye on me. There was something odd about this. As Baptists, we've been taught from the cradle that the only way you made it into heaven was by believing in Jesus and trying to follow his example and living a clean and moral Christian life. And anyone who did not accept Jesus and live a Christian life simply went to hell. That's where Jerry Sisko was, and we all knew it. 
John's words to the crowd that day were not comforting. The words of a prophet rarely are. But the purpose of his words was to try to intentionally provoke the audience and shock them into changing their lives. The people should have expected this. John's arrival was predicted 400 years earlier at the end of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1, we read this. Look at this. I will send my messenger, this is God speaking, who will prepare the way before me. The messenger was John the Baptist. Then... Suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. That's Jesus, says the Lord Almighty. Now, get this. Look at this. This is amazing. Verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Check this out. For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. Fire? Washing water. You see the two images there? 400 years later, John appears on the scene and says, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John is bringing this Old Testament verse to life. He's bringing this forward in his preaching. He's baptizing and threatening judgment by fire for those who do not repent, both in verse 9 and in verse 17. But he predicts the arrival of another, that'd be Jesus, who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. So what does John mean by that? What's he baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire? What's he talking about? Is this fire a reference to Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost, with these tongues of flame that appear over the apostles' head as they're preaching the gospel for the first time? That's the majority of the scholarly opinion. I will tell you I disagree. It just doesn't make sense to me that in this context, the, uh, the word fire appears three times in this passage. Two of them are very clearly a reference to judgment, hell, all that stuff. It doesn't make sense to me that then this one other time John would mean something, Luke recording the words of John, would mean something completely different. Like a verse later. That just doesn't, it doesn't work in my head. That's not the way we speak to each other. And John, remember, he's speaking to the crowd, the common people. Everyday language, he's using normal, it doesn't make sense that he would all of a sudden go, and, and jerk the image over this way, and then you know, back to this other. It doesn't work. I think his use of the word fire is consistent through the whole passage. In case you that, what do you mean? Here's what he's saying. The one who comes as Savior with baptism of water and the Holy Spirit, John chapter 3, all right, is also the same one who comes as judge with fire. It's the same person. What John is telling these people, he's saying, you will be baptized either with the water and Holy Spirit in salvation or with fire in judgment. And the difference is what you do with Jesus. If you accept him, salvation, joy, the fruits of repentance. If you deny him, fire, judgment. He's laying it out very clearly for these people. You see, the first thing that happens when Jesus pulls you out of the crowd and into a relationship with him is that you begin to show the fruits of repentance. Not just feeling guilty, not just feeling sorry that you got caught doing something wrong, but really true life change. 
The second thing that happens is that you find that now you're able to serve the one who's stronger than you. You're able, you, you can serve the stronger one. I mentioned before that the phrase more powerful in the text is literally the word stronger. Now, sometimes in the Bible that refers to physical strength. More often, it meant someone of high status, someone of, of great capacity, someone of great power in the, in the culture. See, what John is trying to tell the people here is that Jesus is a stronger deliverer. And because of that, the baptism of Jesus is a stronger baptism than the baptism of John. See, later, of course, you know, you, some of you know that the man who wrote Luke also wrote the book of Acts. The good Dr. Luke who wrote the gospel of Luke also wrote Acts. So we need to pay attention when Acts talks about something that Luke references and vice versa. Okay, same author. Later, in Acts 19, Paul's on a mission trip. And Paul runs into some people who seem to be believers, but something's missing. He just has a sense that something's wrong in in, in their life, something's off in their walk. And he asked them this question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized? And like, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul said, well, what baptism did you get? They said, the baptism of John. Oh, that's not the same. That's not the same. It's something different. So just like John is saying here in Luke 3, one is coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Paul on his mission trip in Acts 19 sees sees these believers and goes, something's not right. And then they're baptized in the name of Jesus. They receive the Spirit miraculously. It's this amazing thing. Why would, why would that happen in Acts 19? It's because of what John is teaching here. That the baptism of Jesus is a stronger baptism than the baptism of John. Because Jesus is a stronger deliverer than John. John comes to point the way. He's trying to redirect the crowd. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. And listen, friends, if there's anything you hear me say today, do this. If you will do that for your culture, things will change. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. See, the people are impacted by John's clear moral teaching. But here's, and here's the really interesting thing. Luke stops calling them the crowd. These people who were here that day, the word changes. Did you catch that? See, in verse 7, they are the crowd. In verse 10, they are the crowd. And then in verse 15, they are the people. Do you notice? He changes the word. In the first two, it's aklas. He then switches to another word, laos. In fact, the country of Laos next to Vietnam, that's, I think, where the name comes from. Laos, it just means people. The people. These are the people of God. He, he, he says that in verse 15, and he says it in verse 18. They're called the people. Here's the point. As their attention is redirected toward Jesus, they cease to be part of the aklas, the crowd, the leaderless, rudderless mob, and they become part of the laos, the people of God. How does that happen? John does some self-disclosure here and tells them. He says he's not even worthy to reach down and untie Jesus' sandal. You need to understand that in a Jewish home, only a Gentile slave had to do that. Anyone else of higher rank, 
even another slave, if they were a Jew, could refuse to do that task. If your master said, untie his sandal, if you were a Jew, even a Jewish slave could go, no, and be okay. And John says, I'm not even worthy to do that. <laughs> See, to, to the modern ear, that sounds like John's really down on himself. That's not true. N- knowing your place in the kingdom is not the same as having a negative self-image, all right? John knows that Jesus is the king. John knows that Jesus is the stronger one. And he's quite happy to serve him in whatever capacity. <laughs> and so in verse 18, again, they're called the crowd. The peop- they're not the crowd, they're the people. It says that John told them the good news. <laughs> This is a weird text. He, he begins by laying into him with this heavy judgment talk. He tells him there's a way to be saved, though. Look to Jesus. And at the end, it calls it good news. What? Good news? That sounds pretty grim to me. It's good news. Is the reality and certainty of judgment actually good news? Well, if that judgment has been overcome by someone stronger, then Yes. 18th century pastor and theologian Jonathan Edwards' most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, is stunning. It has a reputation among preachers as being one of the most effective and memorable sermons ever preached in the English language. Um, I've known about the sermon for a while. Uh, The reports are that when he gave it, it was delivered almost in a monotone with his head down, and he just held his notes and just read from the manuscript. He just read it. And the response was overwhelming, and a revival broke out. I learned something new about that sermon this week. It was popular in the time of Jonathan Edwards when a criminal was convicted and and was going to be executed publicly by hanging, firing squad, whatever, that they would bring in a preacher to preach to him one more sermon because it's like, dude, you're about to go meet your maker. (laughs) Get right with God. Right, One last chance to hear the gospel. One last chance to hear about a way to be saved and not go to hell. And so they would bring in a preacher. And this kind of gallows sermon was a common form. In fact, when the newspaper would report on the execution, they would often include the text of the sermon in the newspaper. The people of Jonathan Edwards' day in 1741 knew about that form. They understood that genre. And Edwards did something shocking. He got up on a Sunday morning, July 8th, 1741, and preached that style of sermon to good, upstanding, respectable church people. He hammered home the instability of their position before God if they were outside of Christ. He hammered home that... God, God's hand alone held them away from immediate death and the judgment that followed. And in doing that, he compared them to condemned murderers. I want you to hear just a segment of what that might have sounded like. Here's the award-winning author, uh, actor Max McLean who recorded the sermon. Listen. They will fall into destruction. From these words, I insist on this. Nothing keeps wicked people out of hell for a single moment except the mere pleasure of God. By the mere pleasure of God, I mean his sovereign pleasure, which is not hindered or restrained by anything. It is only the sovereign will of God that preserves the life of a wicked person. Nothing else preserves the wicked for one moment except God's mere will. 
The truth of this observation may be seen in the following thoughts. God does not lack the power to throw wicked people into hell at any moment. The hands of men are weak when God rises up against him. The strongest men are defenseless against God, and no one can be rescued from his hand. God is not only able to throw people into hell, but he is also able to do it easily. Nothing can defend you from his power. Even the wicked people, when joined together in great numbers against him, they are easily broken into pieces. They are like great piles of weightless chaff in a tornado or large heaps of dry stubble in the path of devouring flames. History tells us that people fainted due to thinking of their eternal prospects. There were deep groans and sighs of agony from the congregation that day. Some even record that they thought they caught the smell of brimstone on the air. See, the reason that message worked is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, those people got a vision of God who's so much stronger than they are. And Jonathan Edwards pleaded with them, please serve this one. If you will repent and give him your life, this destruction will be spared of you. Apart from Jesus, you are lost in the crowd. But Jesus is strong enough to pull you out of the crowd and into a relationship with him. Church, listen to me. Jesus is the stronger one. He is strong enough to pull you out of your addiction. He is strong enough to pull you out of your infidelity. He is strong enough to pull you out of your greed. He is strong enough to pull you out of your racism. He is strong enough to pull you out of your depression. He is strong enough to pull you out of your abuse. He is the stronger one, and he's reaching out to you with a nail scar hand. Grab it. Grab that hand. Don't let go. In Mark 3, Jesus compares Satan to a strong man. And then he says this. No one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? He says, Satan is strong. How do you tie up a strong man? You get a stronger man to do it. Jesus is the stronger man. He's the strongest one. His salvation is strong enough to pull you out of your sin. He can plunder Satan's house. That's what he came to do when he came to earth, when he saved you. And when you turn away from selfishness and greed and the abuse of the influence you have, you focus on Jesus and serve him with everything you have. See, what the Holy Spirit is trying to do today, I believe through Luke's gospel, is to show us how John brings the people to the point of seeing their need for Jesus and then how John redirects their attention and their focus towards seeing Jesus as the stronger one. Did you hear me today? Only someone stronger than you can pull you out of the crowd and into a relationship with him. Because the hard truth is that there are some stress cracks in the structure of this old world. And death and destruction are imminent. But we've got a mission from our Savior to show people who are lost in the crowd the way to be saved. 
It's our mission to redirect this crowd and point them at Jesus. And my question for you today is this. How are you going to do that this week? I'm going to guess that all of us in here this morning have some area of repentance that is necessary in our lives. Some place that doesn't quite look like Jesus. And so maybe in just a second when we stand and sing together, you're going to need to do some business with God. Just like Paul exhorted us earlier to confess our sins, to repent of them, to turn away from sin and turn toward God. Maybe that's what you'll need to do today. Our decision counselors will be down front. We'll have people in the next step room if you want to have a conversation with someone. If you want to come and have someone pray with you in repentance, we have folks who are ready and willing to do that. Maybe this morning, like the people in this text, you need to be baptized. Maybe you've come to the place in your life where you've seen the need for Jesus and are ready to make that decision. Again, I want to urge you to come while we sing. We're ready to do that. We've got all the stuff we need to do that today. If you want to follow Jesus that way, you come while we sing. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. You respond as Jesus leads you this morning. His hand is reaching out to you. Take it.